this is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. We tape Discover Lafayette with the support of Raider, a managed IT service provider that offers world-class service, including cybersecurity, communications, and technology support. With Raider, you have just one vendor and one number to call, allowing you to concentrate on what is most important, your business. For more information, visit RaiderSolutions.com. Our guest is Richard Zuschlag, chair of the board and CEO of Acadian Companies. Richard came to Lafayette from Pennsylvania in 1970 as a communications engineer for Westinghouse. In 1971, when new federal regulations caused funeral homes to discontinue using their car-based chassis for emergency transport, Richard joined with two friends to form Acadian Ambulance Service in Lafayette Parish. They opened for business on September 1st, 1971 at 12.01 a.m. Today, over 50 years later, Acadian has grown to approximately 5,000 employees in Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Its six subsidiary companies include Acadian Air Med, Executive Aircraft Charter Service, Acadian Total Security, National EMS Academy, and Safety Management Systems. Acadian Companies is privately owned, and under Richard's leadership, it became an employee stock ownership plan known as ESOP in 1993 in order to allow his employees to share in the success of the company. Richard's civic work just spans the spectrum. It's included fundraising for worthy causes, ranging from the Boy Scouts to UL Lafayette, the World War II Museum, and local schools. And among many, many awards, he has been the recipient of the Lafayette Civic Cup, received the Distinguished Citizen Award, and has been named a Louisiana legend by Louisiana Public Broadcasting. Importantly, he was instrumental in setting up the first enhanced 911 system in our state, which gave the operator both the address and the phone number for persons calling for an emergency. So today we're honored to have Richard Zuslog as our guest and allow him to share his voice and his incredible journey and the, the conglomerate that you've built. Richard Zuslog, welcome to Discover Lafayette. Thank you, Jan. I'm worried that I might talk for days because there's so much history here. And I feel so very blessed because I'm not sure I could have had this kind of success in other parts of our country. It's amazing to me how loyal people are here in the Acadiana area. And I think when I look back on it now, um, I have a lot of faulty characteristics. But one good characteristic is to find people who are loyal and will work with others on a consensus basis. And so I pretty much have surrounded myself with some very competent, dedicated uh, personnel. I think the Christianity of this area is very positive, and I think that's probably what's helped make our company Mm -hmm. work so well along with the ESOP. But when I look at other parts of the country, it's hard for me to figure out how I could have done this because people here are family-oriented, and they want to do what's right for their community. So I I feel very blessed. I'm so glad you started with that. Your story and those that started the company with you, um, Roland Duga and Richard, Richard Sterling. Yes. I'd like you to tell us that early story because before we started taping, you said 
not that you don't love Lafayette, you obviously do, but you came here somewhat against your will in 1970 because you were from Pennsylvania. This was probably foreign land to you. Yes. So back in the 70s, Westinghouse came to my college and interviewed me, and they got back with me and offered me a drafter for a job if I went to work for them in Baltimore. And I was a little bit hesitant. But I got to thinking that uh, I wasn't interested in going to Vietnam. <laughs> so I took the job, not knowing exactly what they were going to send me on. And then I ended up with a boss that couldn't decide whether to send me to Saudi Arabia or to Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> now, I'd only been in Pennsylvania and driven back and forth through Maryland <laughs> to Washington. I haven't been anywhere else around the United States. And so my boss decided that he was going to send me to Lafayette, Louisiana. And I, I wasn't so sure, so sure that that was a very good idea. I had an old used Buick that had no air conditioning, and it took me two and a half days to drive down here. When I got here on July 22nd, 1970, it was 99 degrees, and I stayed at the Howard Johnson out on Highway 90 for about the first two weeks until I found an apartment. The fourth day, I went to the Buick dealership here on Pinhook, Spent $440 to get one of those dashboard air conditioners mm-hmm. so I could at least drive <laughs> around and not just be sweating the whole time. I mean, I had never been exposed to this kind of heat or humidity. Yeah, it's stifling. So yeah. the, the more I got to meet people, I started saying, this is, this is unbelievable. These people have a very um, um, unusual accent. <laughs> they have a monsoon rains. People go to... Some schools in flat bottom canoes, <laughs> and the mosquitoes are as big as houses. So I really, and to tell you the truth, the food was so highly seasoned that I had dysentery for a couple of weeks. So I had a hard time getting acclimated when I got, thought maybe I should have gone ahead and gone over to Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Yeah. The job was to go to Saudi Arabia <laughs> to teach them how to operate microwave, in, install microwave communication systems. Here, Westinghouse was on an experiment. I was their first experiment. They were upset that President Johnson was not spending as much money in space and defense as he was in social programs. So I was an experiment for them where they got a big grant to help come down here and train personnel that had no job to work in the hospitals as uh, nurses' aides, uh, housekeeping, dietitian, all those type of Mm -hmm. jobs. And so my job was to get them their high school equivalent diploma and teaching them in the the hospital. And it was called job-related education. And then the afternoon, the nurses would take over and teach them their jobs inside the hospital. It was a big experimental program that Westinghouse was trying Mm -hmm. to make extra money on. And I think I created a lot of success for them, both at Lafayette General and Our Lady of Lourdes. It was quite interesting because that first year, I was basically just a, a high school teacher, mm-hmm. and they had, they had me as an engineer. And we were trying to figure: could they take some of their other engineers and move them away from the electrical communication component and get them more into social programs? It's interesting that my boss at Lafayette General was a man named Joe Real. He was dean of men at UL, had retired, and was doing some consulting work for Lafayette General, and he's the one that found this program. So I reported to him. He was a gentleman, did a lot to help get me oriented. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget that first Mardi Gras here in Lafayette. He took me to Mardi Gras. I didn't know what had what what happened. Is and he taught me how to play bourree. He lived (laughs) over there next to the old Sears building where. our municipal city offices yeah. are right now. Right. He and his wife used to feed me, and really, 
he really watched out for me. And I was kind of like an orphan. I had no relatives. I didn't know anybody down here. But he was very helpful to me in the beginning with my job over at Lafayette General. Mm-hmm. I finally found a garage apartment on Mendel Road across from Lafayette General. Found out that I was the only male there. There was 32 elderly women, all widows. And I was the only male there. And did we have some good times? And, and so young. I mean, how I was, old were you? I was 21 years old. Right. And Just these right ladies were all over 70. <laughs> And they all became my grandmas. Uh-huh. You wouldn't believe what they did through the years to help me. Uh, I just shared this one time. They all decided that I needed to have dates. And so each one of them would give me the date their their granddaughter. Uh-huh. And I forget Mrs. Wow. Her granddaughter lived all the way in Livonia. I had no idea where Livonia was. I guess there was no but GPS back then. You had an air conditioner in your car. Yes, so. I did have an air conditioner. <laughs> right. So I can still remember driving out there to, to pick up uh, her granddaughter to go out on a date. That was something I'll never forget because it was so far away. It was way back off the—they yeah. didn't have the Interstate 10 back then. It was, it, the back road. Right, the back road all the way up there. So I had a lot of good experiences. You know, later on— those grandmas really worked hard to help me get started when the ambulance service came along. A little tidbit. I didn't have enough work at the hospital to keep me fully busy all the time. And so I kind of helped the hospital decide with communications and public relations in some of their programs. And I can remember going and meeting the newspaper personnel. And I would meet Maria Placer, who at the time was just the front desk operator and not in the news department. Really? And uh, I even had a couple of dates with Maria way back <laughs> in the very beginning. You were a man about town. Yes, I was. <laughs> and and I enjoyed helping the hospital. But because of my co- contract with my company, they couldn't pay me anything extra for the work I was doing for them. And this is kind of funny. They decided, that uh, since I lived across the street, that they should feed me. But in order— <laughs> For me to go through the cafeteria and get my meals, they had to give me a doctor's number. They didn't have pagers or cell phones back then, so the PA system would say, Doctor 196, please call the operator. Doctor 234, I was Doctor Zero. Now, why they gave me a zero number, I don't know. But you got to eat. <laughs> I got to eat. <laughs> I could eat three meals a day, even on the weekends if I wanted to walk over there. And the cafeteria was very good to me. But all the doctors would walk around the house, who the hell is Doctor Zero? They couldn't understand mm-hmm. how that happened. But I made a lot of good friends through that. I'm curious about your connection with the hospital. Um, is that where you learned about the law changing, the federal regulations about the ambulances? Because it was before funeral well, homes. Let me would... go forward and okay. say after about six months, I was a little discouraged. With your position? Yes. And I called my parents and said, I'm going to quit my job and come home and work back at the radio station in Greenville. But dad said, no, you're not. You gave Westinghouse a one-year commitment. You need mm-hmm. to finish the one year, and then we can talk. You just can't quit in the middle of your job. Right. That's not. You can't live at our house. I'm the oldest of four. Mm-hmm. I was pretty upset about that, him telling me that I couldn't come home and yeah. live with him. I sometimes wonder now what would have happened if he let me do that. But, yes, my, my the part, person I reported to there was the assistant administrator of Lafayette Journal. His name was Roland Dugau. Oh, that's where Roland was. Yeah, that, so oh. he was he was at the hospital, okay. and so uh, we became very good friends. And he could see that I was not adjusting very well. And his next door neighbor were the Sturleyses, and they had a son that just come back from the Marine Reserves training, named Richard Sturleys, and he convinced the two of us to get an apartment together. And then things changed better because I got in with a younger crowd, yeah. started meeting people my own age. 
And so at the end of the year, I thought maybe we'd go 18 months, but at the end of the year, the contract ended, and Westinghouse wanted me to report back to Baltimore. But now I had gone from not liking Lafayette yeah. to loving it, mm -hmm. and we were looking for something for me to do. And Roland was helping me find something to do when the funeral homes decided to quit the ambulance service here in town. And I remembered how the ambulance company in my hometown of Greenville, Pennsylvania, had used a membership program to get their ambulance service going up there. And oh, okay. I used to broadcast on the radio station in Greenville to help them sell their memberships. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to the ambulance director up there and asked him to send me the information. And that's basically how we got started. We tried to apply for a company called Evangeline Ambulance Service, but Evangeline Funeral Home in New Iberia already had Evangeline Ambulance Service. You can think about this. Most of the funeral homes in Lafayette did a pretty darn good job. But go 15, 20 miles outside of Lafayette mm -hmm. Parish, there's one funeral home that I have a memo on dated 1969. It said, and that funeral home is no longer in business, when there is a wreck, go to the wreck and pick up the dead bodies and bring them back to the funeral home and let the ambulances getting there later pick up the live ones and take to the hospital emergency room. It's and you backwards. think about it backwards, and you think it always comes back to the economics because a back conflict. then a funeral would you'd pay twenty five hundred dollars for a funeral, but you only paid twenty five dollars for an ambulance call. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So there was no uh, interest in really busting no, it. No. But also, Richard, I mean, if if they're going to be burying people, it seems like a conflict of interest. Like you know, you're yeah, picking up but a person. If you trace back into the early days before automobiles. The funeral undertaker was the only one that had a wagon long enough mm -hmm. to lay down a body that was sick. And so oftentimes they got asked to go pick up Aunt Mary and take her over to the doctor's house because they couldn't get her there by horse or by walking. She ended up being in a lane right. down position. So they just kind of got connected to the ambulance service by accident and really didn't want to have it. They just couldn't find anybody else to do it. When they got tired of doing it, and the government changed all the rules. They went to Lafayette Police Street meeting and put their keys on the Police Street desk and said, in six months, we're all retiring. We can't provide this anymore. You've got to find a new system. So you were at the right place at, at the, the right, right time. time. And, you know, I did a little research on the ambulance, what you're talking about, the evolution of the ambulance. And it's interesting how, you know, it was so much safer once the ambulances are on a chassis like we see now, where the paramedic can stand up and it's it's professional. But back then, people were laying down and there was just a little chair in the back of the hearse. Yeah, let me yeah. share that mayor that I dealt with. There was a police duty president and then there was the mayor. And, and the mayor was helping a lot because there was a committee. Mayor Ray Bertram. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, we wrote a proposal up and we went to him. I'm not going to go all through the details. He said we were too young, we didn't have any money. So he told us no. He told us no three times over a three-week period. He wasn't going to entertain our proposal. I'm a very persistent person, and I was getting ready to pack up and go back up to Pennsylvania because my job had ended. And Richard Sterlies, who I was staying with at the time, convinced me to try one more time. Well, you know, four terms. Yeah. So I want to say at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You got he, an appointment? No, nope. I, mean, I just waited till he was going to go home. Oh, you just sat out in the and lobby? he got mad when he came out of the office. And there I had you sat are. there that long. And I don't know what's wrong with you. Why do you keep coming back here for? Please, sir, will you call the mayor of my little town in Greenville, would it be about the size of maybe Abbeville, mm -hmm. and talk to him about his experience with that ambulance company that had a membership program. 
you can still tell me no, but I just want you to know. I didn't know the mayor at that time. I knew the mayor before that. I was gambling because I didn't tell the mayor that was going to happen. Uh -huh. He went back in his office at 630 at night and called that mayor and talked to him for 15 minutes on how that membership program had worked for that small town. So he said, I'm going to call you back tomorrow at 10. I'm not sure what we're going to do. His problem was this. They had sent out for proposals, and he had no money in his budget to mm -hmm. have the fire department do it. Right. So they couldn't do it without any money. And nobody from um, Houston or New Orleans or Baton Rouge would submit any proposals. He couldn't get anybody to come up and say they were going to come do it back then. Oh, and he was in a jam. He was in a jam. Yeah. So the next day he called me back over there. I think Ray, Ray, Ray Downs or Ray Bottom Well, was his administrative assistant. They worked me over pretty good and said, okay, we don't have any choice. We're going to give you a chance. You're so determined, we're going to give you a chance. Ray Bertrand... Back then, they didn't have a city council. There was three trustees. He was one of three trustees, but he was the mayor. He convinced the other two to go along with it. And then finally, the police chief decided they would join in on it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you something. I've never forgotten that on how he then helped us get the banks. There was only four banks to sell the memberships. How he, it was only two TV stations then, right. Channel 3 and 10. No satellites, no cable, outdoor antennas. So he got them to participate. In the first three years, he got them to do it as public service announcements when we were really a private company, but it was for the public good it of was. the community. Yeah, so I'm safety. saying you start looking at people like Tom Pierce and Mr. Mm -hmm. Patton from Channel 3. You know, Tom Pierce did an awful lot to help me. He was a really good mm -hmm. advisor. Mm -hmm. But gosh, if I did something wrong or did something I shouldn't have done, he would come after me pretty hard. Because they had supported you. Yeah, so in a, in a very big way. But I will tell you, as I expanded years later, he would get in his car and drive over to Baton Rouge and introduce me to the general manager of Channel 2 and Channel 9. He did a lot of things like that. Mm -hmm. as, as you think back upon that, I can remember Walter Como was uh, a parish police trainer. And at one time, he was parish president. When I was having difficulty in Hammond, he drove me over there to meet with the police to be president. It, it's Sheriff Bro drove me to Alexandria to meet the, the sheriff. Mm -hmm. These people went out of their way to help me in our company because we were doing a good job in Acadiana. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that's been hard on me is there's so many people that helped me to get to where I'm at. It's hard for me to tell somebody no when they call and ask for help in some project. You know, it's, you uh, pay it it's amazing how supportive this community has been to our company. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and I think it's because we try to do the right things and we make mistakes. We try not to make them more than once, but uh, I have an excellent staff and I'm the spark plug, but they're the ones who get the job done. The people that work here at Acadian are awesome. We, we've been through a very difficult period these last three years with COVID and hurricanes mm -hmm. and flooding and we're short staffed and we're worn out. But we have a lot to be grateful for. So we're, we're continuing to move forward in a positive way. So starting back in 1971, you, I'm glad you told the background story because being that young with no money, you know, at least you had two friends with you. But, but the three of us together know, had $2,500. I mean— and I, I don't mean, know what that is in today's dollars, but you started out with what? Two, two, ambulances. two ambulances. And none of the banks would loan us money. I mean, they collected the membership money, but they wouldn't loan us money. And weren't you a driver? Yeah, I was a driver for uh -huh. two years. I wasn't very good. <laughs> they all teased me. Did you have air conditioning in the uh, ambulance? Yes, there was air conditioning <laughs> ambulance, and I had a merit badge in first aid. 
Oh, you did? So you I, knew how I, to... I, well, I had first aid. Now, I wouldn't... Not CPR. Well, right. And uh, <laughs> so um, I, I tell you, um, we were... I can remember going over to the unemployment office, and there was a number of Vietnam medics coming back. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. They, at this time, there were not EMTs or paramedics. Right. That took five, seven years after we started before they came about. And I found these medics from different branches of the service who were on the unemployment line, but they didn't want to come to work until after six months when their unemployment would end. They wanted their free money, mm-hmm. and they served in the war, and they thought they were entitled to that. So when I would hire them, because I was desperate for people, they would get mad at me. I had one of them even try to box with me because he was so upset. He wanted because they would off. get they would get cut off <laughs> if they didn't take the job. You right. know what I'm saying? But look, those Vietnam medics in the beginning, they they they, they made the impression. I was highly organized and efficient, but they're the ones that started saving lives. And the doctors mm-hmm. in Lafayette loved them because they had been in battlefield and in surgery tents, and they knew what was going on. And yeah. they were, all of a sudden, they're bringing people to the hospital that should be dead, that they kept alive. Here I can still, still remember Lafayette Jones Board in 1973 or 74 fussing at me, calling me in there and saying, you're bringing people here alive that used to be dead. <laughs> And it's taken us 20 minutes to get the doctor on call to come to the emergency room. Now we're having to hire a bunch of doctors and pay them a lot of money to have 24-hour coverage. I thought, why are they chewing me out for that? It's making life better for the community. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? But it was interesting how that change of events happened before paramedics and EMTs came that we stumbled across Mm -hmm. these uh, military medics. They had Army, Navy. They had Air Force. They had Coast Guard. The Marines didn't have medics. They had to use the Navy medics. But they were all arguing who was better medic. And I figured out pretty quick they all were good. The ones that fought in Vietnam, they were very yeah. good. So when I make out my work schedule and I was the driver, I'd always hire the medic that was the most competent to help me since mm-hmm. I wasn't the best at first aid. Where was your office? Where did you open? Over at Four Corners by Jacob's Restaurant. Mm-hmm. There was a Quonset hut back there right next to the railroad track. We rented that space. We uh, we slept on the floor in sleeping bags for six months before we could afford to buy any beds. Uh, we had an upstairs for the bedroom area, and we had two telephones on the wall. And we had a rule back then that when you answered the phone before 911, you had to write down the address and make the call yourself. We had no dispatcher. Oh. In the daytime... They would all run and hide and not answer the phone because they thought it would be a nursing home patient for reasons which is hard to explain. They didn't get excited back then. We've trained them since to transport nursing home patients. They wanted the trauma emergency gun, gunshots, car Mm -hmm. accidents. So at night when the phone rang, it was a fight to answer because they knew it wasn't going to be a nursing home patient. He said, just drive me crazy to see how they would argue over their phones about answering or not answering it. Another neat story is... One of the ambulances got stuck in the parking lot. We only had two in the mud. And, <laughs> you got we stuck had to in the mud. Call and get some shell, fifty dollar, sixty dollar load of shell. And the darn guy, when he left, he didn't put his dump truck all the way down, and it clipped the two phone lines coming in. So I had no phones. <laughs> so I ran downtown to the telephone operator office next to the library, banged on the door, got in there, and an engineer put me at a switchboard, and he fixed up the, a jack on the switchboard to where I could answer Katie Emerson and use my walkie-talkie to radio to the ambulance. That's how I dispatched for the afternoon till they fixed my lines at the office. 
And I liked that so much. Mm -hmm. And I saw these operators with these big uh, dials, and dial 800 number, it took forever. I convinced him when I left to put a jack at all 400 switchboards so when somebody from Abbeville or Crowley would call operator, because no 911, instead of her down that big long 800 number, she just plugged in and ring it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was into commu communications, and I worked really hard to innovate communications to open up channels of communication for all of the public safety organizations in this community. And when we did get 911 started, it was done by uh, Jerry LeBlanc. He, he um, passed a bill in Baton Rouge for the Lafayette Parish Communication District. Oh, so and it was just for our community? Just for our parish. Okay. And I had to go to the taxpayers and get them to vote for a 50-cent tax a month on your phone mm -hmm. and $2 on a business line, and it passed. And that continues today, and that's what helps fund the 911 center. Same we, uh, tax? Do you know that? I wonder if it's still the same. It's gone up a little bit. It's probably 75 cents. It's and, worth every penny. But, but here's the thing. When cell phones came along, I didn't want to tax the cell phones. I didn't know we're just going to keep the landline. Well, they finally outvoted me, and they did the cell phones. But if you go back and look now, there's only about 20% of the 25% that are wirelines, 75% of all of our cell phones right, right now. Right, But all the other parishes adopted the same thing we started here mm -hmm. in Lafayette, except some of them did it through the sheriff or the police jury. We have our own commission here in Lafayette who's the head of the public safety of all the offices. And I was able to get a big Robert with John Johnson Grant. It put a speaker telephone system in all of our public safety offices. They couldn't talk to each other before unless they called on the phone. They all had different radio frequencies. And that line is still working today. It's really been something. But the first week we had it, each emergency room was on it. Fire, police, sheriff, state police, Canadian ambulance. Somebody robbed the bank in uh, Four Corners. And the police picked that up and said what color the car was and broadcast it. It went to all those places. And the sheriff's office heard that and caught the guy before he got through Karen Crow. Wow. And they would have never done that. In pre so it wasn't just for EMS. It was for right. all public. And once you get them talking to each other, they all started cooperating better. When they would come to our 911 meetings, I was dumbfounded that they never got together every year to meet the left hand and the right hand, they mm -hmm. were all competing against each other, and nobody was really talking. Once you get them into one room and they could all work together, it kind of opened up a lot of lines of communication yeah. for the whole community. I noticed that that also helped a lot in our disasters when you have the ability yeah. to communicate with each other. Right, right, like VOAD, yeah, where you right. get everybody together. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, going back to when you started this and convincing Mayor Bertrand about the subscription service, I don't really know the state of insurance back then. I know things cost a lot less, but if you didn't, if you weren't a member of Acadian, could you get the service? Did, or, did so people have insurance? Yeah, so we proposed the membership program. People got upset that uh, it was insurance, and so um, we engaged an attorney named Ben Voorhees. Yeah. Ben said to us, "Well, you don't have any money, and I'll help you for the first two years." If you're still in business two years from now, I'll send you a bill. I mean, it's pretty nice of him to do that. Mm -hmm. But when he said if, it kind of scared me a little bit. If, because I'm planning on still being in business. So we had to go see a hearing in Baton Rouge with the insurance commissioner, Guglielmo. 
And Mr. Ben got up there and said that we were like a termite pest control, like a Sears television contract or a membership at a country club. That uh, and he argued on why we should not be insurance. And so the commission said, well, what happens when 20 people call him for an ambulance at one time and he's only got two? That mm -hmm. was the one. But anyhow, in the end, he ruled that we were not insurance so we could move forward. That was a big block for us. We If he'd have ruled that we had been insurance, we couldn't have got started. He ruled okay. that we were a membership company mm -hmm. and it was all right for us to operate. So we got through that first big battle, and that's yeah. something I have not forgotten. So over the years, so that evolved where insurance right. covers so, this. Right. So what happened for the first 10 years is you bought a $15 membership. If you used the ambulance for a non-emergency, it was $45. If you used it for an emergency, it was 90 If you were a member, you never got a bill. We didn't even bill the insurance back then. Right, you remember. right. But if you weren't a member, then you had to pay your $45 or your 90 And we had a recipe box with those three-by-five cards with 10,000 cards on our first membership list. Took Richard, Roll, and I 10 days to alphabetize, because it's all handwritten, alphabetize those 10,000 cards, a lot more cards than what people realize was before computer. that was a success. Yes. Yes, it was. Very a, successful. We, yes. We, that's, that's pretty much our capital. That, that's the money yeah. we used to, to operate our company. And, I mean, for young men, yeah. I guess they were older. Was Roland was yeah, a little bit both, older. Well, Richard and I are the same age. Roland was four or five years older than I but was. Not and much. let me just say this. Until down the road, when we talked later, it was a company from Boston tried to buy us out after 25 years. Until then, we were strong Christian men that got along pretty darn well, and we compromised a lot, and we built consensus. You know, if mm -hmm. one of us didn't want to do something, we'd have to wait until we get everybody together. But we really got along well those first 25 years. Um, and, and Roland, with his hospital background and his Air Force background, was very mature. Richard handled the people in the country a lot better than I did. Uh, I was the Yankee. Mm -hmm. and But the three of us worked very well together in those early years. I will always be grateful for them and their patience in helping get us started and, get, and getting the company to where it is. So you've had some people that may be retired now, but you kept people with you. Forever. Forever. And I'm not yeah. to, Literally, like uh, they've spent their adult the lives here. I'm the nicest person to work for. I'm a pretty tough person. You know, I had to go get some counseling. Um, I'm driven for perfection, and as you know, we can't be perfect. We never, we can try towards being, but we're not going to ever get there. It won't ever happen. And so when a medic failed to charge his defibrillator the night before and went to the gymnasium to resuscitate a referee and he died because his batteries were dead, it gave me an arrow in my heart that that's my fault. I'm not running this place the right way. It was very hard for me to get over that because I was pushing them all going crazy because I was trying to make them all perfect. Mm -hmm. But every organization has a few things that go wrong. You just have to minimize those. And I work real hard with our, and I'm still involved in the operations, and I watch a lot of different things, and I'm sometimes get difficult to work with when things aren't going the right way, although I've gotten better since I've got grandchildren. I'm a little bit more moderate right now. But I'll just say I think that created some of the early success. And in some cases, I lost a few good people over that. But for the most part, the people that stayed made success because they were very loyal, mm -hmm. very loyal and committed. And many of them 
worked long, long hours to get us to where we're at today, and that's something I will always be grateful for because I was a workaholic. The generation today is not like that. My son Blaze works with me. He does a great job, but I'm not pushing him to work the kind of hours I used to. I'm trying to be more reasonable that you have a family life and you got to spend time with your family. You can't be working all the time. I had a wonderful wife. Yeah, She's forgiven me for a lot of things that I did wrong, but I wasn't home very much. I just worked all the time. Now, maybe that's what it took to get this place going, but uh, it was hard on family life, but things are good now, and that's what counts. I was thinking you've worked for yourself all these years, but really you've worked with your team, like you're yes. saying. It's a different focus than just you've built this. It is much harder on me now to make big decisions when so many of our employees are dependent on the retirement, and I can't have a blunder. I... So far, ESOP started in 93, but it really got mature in 98. And so from 98 to now, we have handed out just under $300 million to people who have left the company. Either they got fired, which is a very few, or they retired, or they moved to another area or went to another company. But when you leave here, we go ahead and buy back your stock that year at the current price for that year. We don't hold on to it. And... Currently, there's approximately $460 million still on paper that need to go out over the next 10 years or so. So if I would have a blunder or we would do something wrong and the company got into financial trouble, a lot of that retirement would go away. You follow what I'm trying to say? Because it's, yeah. it's not in cash. It's on paper. We're right. going to keep generating profits every yeah. year. So if somebody is working for us and they will put 4% of their annual salary into the 401k, then we'll put somewhere between 8 and 12%, depending on the year, into their ESOP. And then when they retire, they get that ESOP money. So it's interesting um, how Russell Long wrote this legislation, and there's probably only 6,500 ESOPs in the country. Right now, we might be one of the top 20 successful ones that have done everything the right way to watch out for our, the interest in our employees. And I think the... ESOP has really helped our employees an awful lot. I'm very proud of that. So it was about 20 years after you started, a little bit more than 20 years when you decided to go with the ESOP. I'm curious if you can back us up even more in that 20-year period. When did you grow outside of Lafayette? And do you remember the day when you and your your team were like, we're going we're gonna to keep on growing? Yeah. I'll say this. Um, from the very beginning... I had no idea that we would go outside of Lafayette. I thought if we could run Lafayette and maybe grow into 10 or 12 ambulances and have 50 or 60 people, mm -hmm. I'd be happy for life. Success. Yeah. But we had so much good success with those Vietnam medics, and we were pretty efficient with our communications, that all the surrounding parishes started bombarding us and asking us for help. We didn't have a very good plan, and I would say that our mistakes might have been that we were good at answering 911 calls, and we moved pretty fast. We answered these calls from these elected officials pretty fast, too. And so we started expanding without really knowing we were expanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, we went to this parish, went to that parish. I finally got Red Dimensional at the old Gandhi Bank to start loaning us money. It took a while for that to happen. <laughs> um, he was a great banker for yeah. us. Uh, I tell you— uh, 
I didn't have enough room for a spare tire of that ambulance, the first ones we got, <laughs> for all the medical equipment. And I was in Shreveport, and I got a flat tire. I couldn't get back. And I called him to wire me the money. He fussed at me for not having a Bank of America card back then. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, I told him his bank wouldn't give me one. So when I came <laughs> back the next day, I went, and he processed it for me. And he was trying to get me $400 line of credit uh, on a Bank of America card. And they turned him down. <laughs> this is something I'll never forget. He co-signed my application. Now, in today's environment, that's probably illegal. Yeah. But that man co-signed my, to let me have a credit card. Those are kind of things you don't ever forget. Mm-hmm. It meant a lot to me. Uh, he loaned me money when others wouldn't. Uh, he, he, he got to the point where he was not a board member, but he loaned us so much money that he had to review our budget every year, and we weren't allowed to take a raise mm-hmm. without him blessing it because he was loaning us all that money. And you were growing so fast. Yes, we were you growing too fast, really too fast. Was it, yes. you think so, looking back? And so, you know, we probably should have done better planning. We weren't very good planners. We're doers. Some people spend all that time planning and get nowhere. We just kept doing and doing and doing, and me creating a sense of urgency— in the business, like the response kind of helped. In other words, I I, I want to make sure I'm taking care of that patient and I'm getting there right away, fast. And that's the way I want to operate the business. Mm-hmm. And tell people that I had a really good mom on the oldest of four. But she was pretty demanding. And on Saturday morning when she told me to go make my bed, that wasn't this afternoon or tonight or even even five minutes from now. She meant for me within three seconds to be off my chair and going to make it, or she'd come after me with a broom. <laughs> so you were kind of Brad to be, you know, Yes. Jump. In other words, I get upset when they don't solve problems today. I don't want to wait till tomorrow to solve them. I want to get it all done today. Mm-hmm. I've had to change some because we've been over lately, but I used to go around and check with my supervisor and I make them give me their card to see what their ten things were that they're going to, or five. That they're going to, if they didn't have their list, I'd fuss at them. You can't go to work and just do what's next. You have to have a list and get things done on the day. So I was a, I was pretty hard. I, I drove pretty hard and I made some mistakes. What I've learned through my mistakes, and I'm blessed to surround me with people that have been very good at helping me fine tune the system. Mm-hmm. I had a. I'm jumping ahead too far, but I had a CEO in New Orleans that really tried to mentor me, and I had great respect for him. And his board made him go to a CEO coach, and he refused to do it. Well, they said, you have to. So he finally did it. So he wouldn't give me this big contract I wanted after I expanded until I was going to get a CEO coach, and I didn't want to do that. (laughs) I'm too old. Finally, I did it. And I have to tell you, in that two- or three-year period, it broadened my horizon I learned some things about my staff and my family I didn't know, and it made me a better person. But I went into it very upset, yeah. taking different psychology exams. and didn't I know what it. I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. But, but I learned that I knew a lot, but I didn't know a lot at the same time. And it, quite frankly, it's made me more open-minded and um, made me realize I can get things done without being so demanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, some things need a sense of urgency, others— Need to have a due date sometime. But uh, in those early years, I created everything as a sense of urgency. In fact, the professors from Tennessee came down from the university to study why we were so successful. And I remember one of the things they said to somebody, well, he's 
running the business part of that company, just like he runs the emergency response. Everything is a sense of urgency, and nothing waits till the morning. He gets it all done that day. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to help make us successful. Well, obviously it worked. Right, yeah. You know, but it's interesting what you've learned. Like, you can look back. You're still 100%, 150% active here, but you can see the importance of people and the culture, right? And, and the changes that we've made through the years. Yeah. You know, mistakes have been made. We corrected a lot, but I feel I feel so blessed because Lafayette and Acadia have special people. Maybe we had a special cause to save lives, but I can't tell you how many people have come out to help us in our endeavors, no matter small or large. It goes on and on and on, not just government elected officials, but doctors, hospital CEOs. I mean, there's a lot of people that have reached out to say, we think we can help you get this done or get that done. And so as I moved into those surrounding parishes, like you asked, in many cases, either the police jury or the hospital or the funeral home was running the ambulance service, and they were struggling. Mm -hmm. And they so badly wanted to help me be successful so I would stay. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just can't thank people of this area. We are successful because of the giving nature of the people in our community. It's a very special community to raise a family. And I dare say this company couldn't have been this successful in other parts of the nation. And we all take for granted Acadian. We, all, we just take it for granted yeah. that if we are sick or in an accident, you're there. Yeah. I mean, quick, quick, quick. We, we, we have a good record. Our yeah. people do a good job. It's taken a long time to build this culture and to have the kind of um, opinions from people across the state. I, I mean... No matter where I go, I have people talking to me about employees that worked here or used to work here or grandparents that got saved by the ambulance. I mean, you know, we transported uh, just right around 700,000 patients last year in the four states. It's amazing how many people's lives we touch and help out. And we make a few mistakes now and then, but we try to minimize those. And I think we've learned a lot in our last 50 years. I have an unbelievable great management team right now and a lot of the people that helped me get started have all retired I think I'm the only one left mm -hmm. and we're in the second generation and even in a couple of them we're down to the third generation where I have a grandson of an employee of the employee so in other words it's amazing to see how that's worked right. Uh, right. It, it gives me a lot of pause to think about these hospitals and how they helped us because we went through some difficult times, and the hospitals always seem to reach out. And uh, we try to be very transparent. We try to always treat our patients with dignity, and we always try to take them where they want to go. We try not to get involved in broking one hospital or another healthcare. We, we want to go where the patient wants to right. go, and we right. try real hard to do that. You've also made an incredible um, investment in our community outside of your work. And I didn't even scratch the surface on the many awards you've been given, but you've spent, I don't know how much time you spent out of each week raising money for good causes, serving like on the LSU Board of Supervisors. You, you, you are doing it in so many ways, and that must bring you great joy it to does, get back. It does now. I'm learning how to take less assignments. <laughs> I'm grateful for what I have. Mm -hmm. But I think it probably got started because so many people helped us get going. When they would call and ask 
me to do something. I couldn't tell them no because they had got us to where we're at. Mm -hmm. they, uh, and I think probably I come from a modest home, and um, my parents worked really hard on trying to teach us how to share when we were growing up. And so uh, my daddy uh, delivered milk to grocery stores, and I used to help him do that in the um, summertime. But I always felt bad for him because his company didn't have a retirement program. He just got his Social Security money. And so I always said, if I belong to a business, I would want to see to it that there was some kind of supplemental retirement program for the people that work real hard to make the business successful. This ESOP fit that perfect. Mm. It's something that... Uh, Right before Russell Long died, he said, you're one of the few people I know they did with the ESOP the way it was meant to be. Some right. of these large companies try to take advantage of the tax system and manipulate things to use the ESOP. But I, I did it the right way. It made me very proud that he shared that with us. Mm -hmm. So that's something that makes me proud to see people leave here after 30, 40 years with a nice pile of retirement money because they worked their butt off to make us successful, and now they get a chance to have some money mm -hmm. while they retire. So I shared a lot, and I think that's helped create a lot of the success. Your parents must have been so proud. Yeah, they were. When, they, when he retired, they would come spend the hard winters down here, mm -hmm. and uh, not the summers. Not the summers, <laughs> but because they they love to golf, and they had their little golf community back up there in Pennsylvania. But I'll just say. My dad would be very proud when he'd go to the bank to cash in a check or something. Mr. Zussel, are you Richard's father? You know, everywhere mm -hmm. he would go, he would just beam. So yeah. um, it's, uh, I think my parents felt very... Um, my mom was a little disappointed for this reason. I got sent down here, but then my brothers wanted to come work in the summertime while they were in college, and they both ended up staying down here. So she kind of blamed me for moving the family south, so to mm -hmm. speak. And I think she missed not being with us. Of course, in the retirement years, she did better. But, you know, people start moving around nowadays, and they don't stay back in their small towns. And so I think that might have been a little hard on her. But at the end, I think she realized that I had done the right thing. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad your dad wouldn't let you move home. You know, he was I, your biggest I often think there. about what— mm -hmm. And how upset I was with him. What would have happened if I had moved home? Mm -hmm. Because that little radio station, which was a big deal back then, is connected to 15 other stations on the Internet, and there's nobody left there, and it's all done by computer, and it doesn't make the kind of money in Greenville it used to make, and I wouldn't have done very well with that. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So my big dream of going back and owning that little radio station, I'm glad it happened the way it did. God, I guess, has a plan. And I just didn't know it, but I've just kind of followed through my daily prayer what needs to be done. And I, mm -hmm. I feel, I guess in my seniors, I feel just very blessed to have landed in this community and have such a nice network of good people. Yeah. And, and how good it is for my family. I mean, my three children all got married. They have wonderful spouses, and they each have three grandchildren. That's nine grandchildren. They all live pretty much in my neighborhood, so we spend a lot of time together. And I start my morning out with my meditation. I always give God thanks for allowing me to have a company that's well-respected and a family that's doing well right now. I keep praying that it all, all keeps Continues. going on. You know? right. Do you have advice for a young entrepreneur such as yourself? Like you took advantage of 
a change in the regulations that was transforming. You know, it was an opportunity for you, but you seized upon it. And with today's world, the way things change so fast, there's probably untold opportunities. I think you have to have a positive attitude and find something that will make you happy. I think too many people get jobs that they're not happy at. Mm -hmm. I've always kind of told my I'm sorry if you're not happy. If you can't be happy 75% of the time here, please move to another department or move to another company. And I wouldn't say how many people I saw go from department A to B to C and then go to another company. You have to find something you have passion about. Whatever it is, you got to find something that's needed in the community and that you can feel good about doing it and enjoy the work and not have it be such a um, burden on you. Mm-hmm. In other words, I think that I got too involved with the charity work and took on too much responsibility, and some of it became a burden. And I've learned now how to accept it and say I'm blessed that I have the ability to do this. I'll give it my best try. I just try not to accept every phone call I get to go do all that now. Right. I delegate some of that to my children and to the staff. And this company works really hard in getting our employees to give back to their communities, not just here but across the whole area, their time and their materials to help make successful events. And so we do a good job of getting our people to do that, and I'm real proud of our organization. We've only just scratch the surface of your, your life journey. And you mentioned to me that you're interested in, in working on a book that really tells the complete story of your life, you know, yeah. what brought you here and everything. And I'm, I'd love to get you back on the podcast. You yeah, know, when I would be glad that. to come back and visit again. Um, I've done a couple of these before, and I like to go back and listen to them when I start writing the book. Mm-hmm. But I, I would just say that uh, one other note, we, we have a little bit extra time. Oh, I don't sure. know how long we... I'm, but, we're good. Okay. Uh, something else that I fell into by accident was duck hunting. Now, I hunted pheasants and turkeys with my dad when I was 14, 15, 16. And when I went away to college, then we didn't do any hunting. But uh, Richard Stirley's took me duck hunting. I hadn't done that before. And I got into it pretty good down in Cameron Parish. And then... Um, Ron Gidry won the Cy Young Award, and I was a friend of his. We'd met here in Lafayette when he went off to to play ball for the Yankees. And he called and asked me if he could bring the New York news media to our old camp to do some filming and videoing of him hunting after he won that award. Well, it was a camp we were renting and it had outdoor plumbing. It didn't have outdoor plumbing, and so we had to spend $10,000 and paint the building and clean out all the rats <laughs> and put a, a side closet on to put an inside toilet with water running. It was a real camp. Yes, yeah. right. And so uh, he came, and I'll never forget <laughs> this. Uh, my friend Richard Sturdy's brother, David Sturdy's, who's a local geologist, he push-pulled that uh, P-Row out in the marsh and the photographer for Sports Illustrated got a perfect picture of them that ended up on the front cover oh my gosh. of Sports Illustrated from our camp. I've never forgotten that. Oh, my that. goodness. And so that kind of put us on the map. And it just as kind far of start, as your, your hunting? hunting yes, uh-huh. it just started kind of happening. You know, John Bro was a congressman. He used to come and bring his friends. Uh, and we had four bunk beds, only room for eight. Crowded. And I remember Nathan Stansbury and Walter Como and Sheriff Bro, and they would all come down there and bring their friends. 
And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And I look back on it, I'm more of a social hunter. I, I'm not real upset if I don't get enough ducks during the day. I like going out in the marsh a lot, but mm -hmm. uh, some people are real serious about this. Some are casual like I am. And then the camp was destroyed by uh, Katrina, uh, Rita, by Rita, and that was terrible. And we found another camp that we had to do a lot of renovations on that has kind of gotten fixed up pretty well. And I've been blessed now to have 17 different U.S. senators come hunting there, House members, Supreme Court justices, uh, Vice Cheney. President Dick Cheney, yeah. a, lot, a lot of luminaries, mm -hmm. and people want to come and see what it's all about. Well, the camp is nice, and the hunting has been good. It's been a little light these last couple of years. But some people have real nice camps, but no hunting at all. Others have good hunting, but not, not a real nice camp. I'm blessed to have both of yeah. those. And a lot of the top friends of mine here at the company come help me manage that during duck season. And we just had a pretty successful duck season this year. And um, I might say that uh, Senator Cassidy brought his grandson. He doesn't oh. hunt, but he brought his grandson out mm -hmm. to learn how to shoot a gun and to take him hunting, even though he doesn't hunt. Uh, Congressman Scalise came and brought his son this year twice mm -hmm. and found something that his son really loves to do, and the man's very busy, so he enjoyed being out there. So we enjoy having, and I think bringing people like that to the camp, you get to know them better than going to eat lunch. And uh, it's Definitely. amazing how many things that we've worked out through that camp that have improved the company through the years. Mm -hmm. So that's another part of my life that, I would say it's a big a big hobby that I enjoy doing. Yeah. You get more than 75% pleasure out of that. It's yes, 100%. Yes. And yeah. I'm blessed to have the people to help me make uh -huh. that thing go. But we have a lot of luminaries that come through there. But the other thing that's happened is my wife is a lot more involved now and the grandchildren are more involved. And so instead of it being clients all the time, 40% of the hunting probably now is family-oriented, and I like that a lot. Your I wife, mean, um, yeah. she, she hunts? She doesn't hunt, uh -huh. but she loves to come out there with the grandchildren, and they hunt. And enjoy it, yeah, yeah. She enjoys helping get the meals ready and helping them get their clothes on and all those kind of things. And since we had to remodel this new camp after the last flood, her being more involved in picking out what we're going to have in different rooms and the draperies and the carpet and the... But she's a lot more tuned in now that she's more involved. It's not just mm -hmm. a man's camp anymore. Yeah. And so I, I kind of like that. Um, my husband likes to hunt, too, and I know Cameron Parish is a great place. Right. Are you a cook? Do you take the duck breast and cook? I'm not good. You're not I can, good? I can barbecue and I can do breakfast. I like barbecue. Uh, my son, duck. Blair, is excellent cook. And he knows how to cook the ducks, and mm -hmm. his brother, Blaze, also knows how and we've been invited to the governor's mansion here in two weeks, I think, where we're going to take a Friday afternoon, and the two boys are going to show the governor how they cook because he loves their ducks. Oh, and he really? wants to learn how to do that. Wow. So we're going to go down and do that. So that's a big project for us that I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to. I've never—I don't like to shoot a ducks. You know, my yeah. husband, is John, is just loves hunting. And we have a kind of a running joke when he brings home ducks. I, I can't see them. I can't see the body. Right. They have to come home in a Ziploc, like right. already clean, because it's just, they're beautiful. But he, along with you and others, know that God gave us, you know, right. birds and animals to, to feed us. You know, you know um, I'm not a deer hunter. I don't shoot big game. I don't shoot rabbits or squirrels. But I like to shoot birds. And... Um, 
I'm not good at cooking them. I'm good at eating them. <laughs> but um, it's 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 fellowship. It's a reason yeah. to go out to the camp and get to know somebody better. And it's just amazing the friends that I have made through the years that may have missed each other for 10 years. And all of a sudden, I meet them in another city or they help me do another project somewhere. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, it's a very interesting story how that all happened and how grateful I am, particularly for the people here at the office that helped me keep the place going because it is uh, a lot of extra work. I've learned a lot today. Um, I think a lot of us kind of know your story. We don't know some of the heartaches you had at the beginning, you know, as you were building the Let's get together again and do another, another part like two. That. I think that would be very nice. I like doing these. Be good for me to keep this and let the grandchildren listen to it later in life yeah. that uh, they'll know more about Papa than what they thought they know. Yeah. I'm proud to have you among our stable of guests. Um, I've been doing this almost six years, and I do it because of my love for the community. But your story is so inspiring, and what I take from it is family is important and should be front and center, your faith. And then really your networking skills are probably second to none. Like that I, I, that's what I'm hearing. You knew from an early age you can't do it by yourself. And you need you need to have friends. Yep. You know? Yep. And I've made a lot of friends and they've done a lot to help me. Yeah. So I feel very grateful and I'm appreciative of you taking time to come visit. I look forward to us getting again together soon. It'll be my pleasure. All right. So thank you. Richard Zuschlag, CEO and uh, board chair of Acadian Companies. I want to thank our listeners, too, for your loyal support. Thank you for tuning into this, and please share it with your friends so they can get to know Mr. Zuschlag. If you haven't, please visit discoverlafayette.net, where you can find Richard's interview along with about 200, I think it's almost 300 interviews at this point. Um, just a treasure trove of movers and shakers and talented people in our community. I want to thank Raider and in particular Jason Sikora for mixing our tape and making it sound so much more professional than I ever could. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, this is Jan Swift. 